0: things. So when you think about your faith, so when you think about my faith with Jesus, is it Jesus and me or is it Jesus and we? So is your default setting when you engage your faith, when you, you know, when you're sort of preoccupied with your faith, when you, when you look at yourself and your faith, is it Jesus and me or is it Jesus and we? And, you know, that may not have ever occurred to you that, that that is a different perspective. If you have, which most of us as good Americans have, uh, the American brand of Christianity is essentially Jesus and me. And what I want to show you is that, that you need to, we need to rethink that for lots of reasons, Uh, And I want to read a passage in 1 Corinthians, and it's a a letter that that one of the early leaders in the church wrote to some Christians who were in a city called Corinth, and uh, it was a a pretty influential city, it was a seaport, it was a wild place, uh, and it was a very diverse place. And he, I'm just taking two verses out, then we'll look at a couple more uh, short passages after that, but he comes at this whole idea of, of Jesus, our, our relationship with Jesus, in such a different perspective than, than I think most of the time we think about. And what I want to show you is, the whole that's in a lot of our lives with respect to our faith is related to this whole question of, is it Jesus and me, or is it Jesus and We? And so when Paul writes this letter, here's what he says and in 1 Corinthians 12. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, whoosh, in the chair in front of you, there's always a Bible, a paperback Bible. You're welcome to borrow it. This is not Gideon's, so you can take it home with you, right? You're not supposed to do that if you didn't know that when you're in the hotel. You don't take the Gideon's Bible home. But you can take these Bibles home. If you know anybody who needs a Bible, feel free to grab one, whoosh, uh, pass it on to them. You can even give them the impression that you bought it. None of us will, will let the cat out of the box. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says, The body is a unit. It's one. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, what he's saying here is, is Paul starts with this observation. He says, Listen, we, guys, we all know this. Human beings have a body, and their body is made up of many parts. There's arms and legs and fingers and ears and eyes and hands and feet. And he said, And, and, and all those parts are important, but they're a unit, they're a part of something that's a unit and everybody recognizes the essential truth of that and then he says and it's that way with Jesus so he's he's drawing this he starts with this everyone agrees on this and then he makes this inference and then he explains why it's true and he says when you were baptized into Christ when you met Jesus the holy spirit who was at work in your life he baptized you into Christ, but also into his body. And whether you were, and he says here, and he brings up really important distinctions, because in, in, in an American culture, we're kind of a melting pot, and we're very much more uh, comfortable with people who are different today than people were back then. But in many of these ancient cities, if you don't know much about the historical setting, like in cities like Corinth and Ephesus, where... Uh, I'm going to quote some verses in a second from the book of Eph- Ephesians. They would, the quarters, uh, the city was divided up into quarters. And those quarters would house ethnic groups. And so the, the Greeks uh, would live in a certain place, and the Arabs would live in another place, and the, the the people from Rome would live in another place. And, you know, each ethnic group had its own area. And in most of these cities, there wasn't just... On one side of the street, the Greeks lived here, on another side of the street, the Persians lived here. there was typically a wall between those quarters, because the ethnic hostility was such that there was, the, the cities would just get torn apart when groups would start going at each other. And so what cities did is they had, you know, roads that, that crossed between these quarters. But they tended to be very clear lines of demarcation. And if you go to a place like New York City, there's still the vestige of that. There's Italian areas. There's Jewish areas. There, you know, there's Harlem. There's, uh, there's Spanish Harlem. If you've ever been in New York, you go in these areas. It's very famous. Now, they've all bled together, and it's not near as segregated ethnically as it used to be. But in this culture, when he says... We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. He was speaking to a really radical distinction. Because slaves and free people didn't hang around together, they didn't have like softball teams. The slave and free team, it it didn't happen. They, They didn't blend, they were very distinct. And then Jew and Greek were even more distinct from one another. And what he said was, when we heard the gospel and we believed in Jesus, God did something. He made us a part of something. We didn't get to vote or choose. Because God's plan for salvation, to to bring his kingdom into our lives, was not just about getting us to heaven. It was about changing the way the world worked. And so when we believe in Jesus, we are suddenly, he uses one metaphor here of a body. He says suddenly we become a part of a body and we become a member of that body. We have a role in that body. We are important. We have a place. Now, when you're a slave and you hear that, you hear one thing. When you're a free person, you hear another. When you're Jew, you hear another. When you're Persian, you hear another. When you're a man, you hear another. When you're a woman, you hear another. One class. All these distinctions were very, very much in their minds. And the whole letter that Paul wrote here of 1 Corinthians, he was constantly dealing with this idea of these people were, were very, very preoccupied with their own stuff. And he was saying to them, When you met Jesus, Jesus just, he didn't destroy the distinctions because, you know, I don't not become a a Texan, uh, and Texans are very much about being from Texas, but if you have an ethnicity, coming to Christ doesn't change your ethnicity, it just subordinates it to a higher ethnicity, a spiritual ethnicity, that in Christ... That's your main identity. And being part of his body and his people supersedes all the other ways that you identify. Now, that's a, that was a challenge then. It's a challenge now. And on top of that, and they, had, they were a little further down the road with this idea than we are, they were much more willing to embrace the idea of faith as being part of a we. We. We're much more faith as it's me. And so when when Paul writes this, he basically says, Faith unites you, because we've been talking about identity and how identity unites you to Jesus, right? And all the privileges we get with our new identity in Christ. Faith unites you with Jesus, and it unites you with his people. So your faith unites you with a person, Christ, and a people, this church. It, it's an organic thing. It happened to you when you accepted Christ. You didn't feel it. It was kind of like in the fine print, right? I, I, how many of you are on those uh, on the no call list? You, you've, you've, there's a government no call list that you don't want to be bothered by. Raise your hand if you are. Okay, hold your hands up. Okay, now, how many of you that held your hands up are still getting those annoying calls, right? Do you know why you're getting those annoying calls? Because you signed on to some website somewhere. And like me, it asks you to sign off on all these, uh, uh, you know, thousand pages of stipulations about your involvement with this website. Well, somewhere in there, there's a fine print that says, oh, and by the way, we're going to give your phone number to sales solicitors. (laughs) And you've given us permission to do that because we're giving you something free and we've got to get something back from you so we're going to use your identity to sell to these guys and i don't know which one of those websites or services or whatever i've signed up for has done that to me but it's too late i have no idea now and so i just have to accept this well when you came to jesus you you didn't think you you thought the bargain was wow i get to experience god's forgiveness i'm a new person in christ all these benefits But in the fine print, Jesus said, and to Americans, this is a big thing. To the rest of the world, it's a good thing. To us, it's an annoyance. Because we think mostly in terms of Jesus and me. The we part is optional. The we part, it's not even optional for a lot of Christians. Now, you know, many of you have a regular involvement with the vineyard. But the, the, the large majority of Christians in the United States, really people who really genuinely have a faith in Christ, they have no real sense that they're connected to a body. It's incidental to their lives. They can live their lives without it. But the, this is the question is, can we really contradict reality? Because Paul says here, you are... When you were baptized, this happened to you, so I want to I want to unpack this for a minute. Now you, you know you might say, listen, uh, my faith is a private individual matter. I get to choose who I associate with absolutely. I get to uh, and, and, and frankly, I like to associate with people that are like me that have an affinity for the things that I have an affinity for well you know, as we'll see in a second, when you, when you believe in Jesus, a lot of things change. And one of the things that Jesus is trying to challenge in us is that very thing that I only choose to, to relate to people who have an affinity for the things that I have an affinity for. That look like me, that sound like me, that are educated like me, that have the same political persuasions that I have, they come from the same financial class, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc., etc. And one of the first things that, that you see about Jesus was all those things, they're not unimportant. They're not bad things. But Jesus is trying to remake the world and he's starting with the relationships that we have because that's the key to everything, isn't it? So Paul, when, when we think about I want to choose who I belong to. And to Americans, that's, that right is enshrined in our Constitution, right? The right of association is very important to us. Well, Paul says uh, to in us individualistic American Christians, he, he writes, I want to read this, the next couple of verses here to you. He says, okay, starting in verse, verse 14. I get you, you know, Corinthians. You guys are struggling with this whole idea That, you know, the the Jews have to hang around with the Greeks, and the slave uh, eats with the free person. That didn't happen. So let me explain to you more about what you already understand about reality. Your body is a model for the reality, the spiritual reality that you've entered into in Christ. And he says, starting in verse 14, now the body is not made up of one part, but many. Look in this room. Many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Now, in this paragraph, Paul deals with this issue of we struggle oftentimes with the sense of inferiority. We look at other people and think, that's what like a real Christian looks like. That's how you measure a, a real person of faith. They, you know, they can do this or they know this or they have this kind of character or, or they have this ability, this gifting. And that's, that's the, the, the model that we should all shoot for. And we tend to think, I don't belong because I'm not like that, right? And most people have secretly wrestled with that. There's a sense of inferiority that we all wrestle with. Well, the gospel says when you meet Jesus, he comes to live inside you, he gives you gifts and abilities, and he takes the person you were meant to be anyway that never really was fully realized, and he brings that person out, and you begin to bloom and become who you're meant to be, and you're valuable. And God, by the way, doesn't want the body to just be one part, but it has this multiple forms and they're all built together and they're amazing because of that. And so he's saying, don't compare yourself with other people and don't write yourself off because you don't have certain abilities and you, you think that that diminishes you and that makes you not a part. He says, you're a part. God wanted you. He knew the body needed people like you no matter who you are. No matter what color you are, no matter what political persuasion you are, no matter how little education you have or how much education you have, no matter how little money you have and how much money you have, no matter how whatever, because people are just different. God wanted these differences and distinctions to be blended together, but he wanted them to become one body, which is obviously a challenging thing. And then he goes on, and next thing he says in verse twenty, uh, let me find it again here, or twenty-one. He says, "The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you." So I mean, it is kind of silly. An eye can see something, but it does. If the hand isn't there, a, a lot of what the eye can bring to the table is not realized because a hand plays a role. And what vision, the possibilities that vision brings. And then the head and the foot. And he's, he's trying to say that, the, that the, part, the body has all these parts and they're all crucial to the proper functioning of the body. And so every person has something to give. This is not some idealized, abstract thing. It's absolutely true. And he goes on to say the, the, the parts that don't look very important actually are crucial and then he says at the end of that that passage that section he he says that really if you understand the way the body of Christ works when one part suffers it all the parts suffer and when one part is honored all the parts are honored and that's that's the way it is with life again he starts from the concrete and then he goes to the spiritual application now He deals with the the two objections that people have about body life, about community life. One is, I feel inferior. And then two is, but I don't really need community. Those are two very, very uh, stubborn things that oftentimes one or both are at work in people's lives, and they keep us away from Christian community. And in here in Corinth, both of those were crucial realities that were causing the body to unravel. And Paul is challenging him and saying, listen, we're not just trying to achieve this noble cause of, of a Christian community. This is God's reality. The Spirit created this. We're trying to realize the potential that is here we're trying to to move together into something that's richer and fuller than any of us have individually so he's he's inferring and and he he says it more directly in other places is if your faith has a hole in it it's that probably a significant part of that whole has to do with you trying to relate to God just with Christ in me. And you've missed, there's this full vision and purpose of what your life is about, but it involves other people. It involves this, your life being deeply connected to other people, vulnerable to other people. I talk about that all the time. And the deeper I get into vulnerability myself, the more challenging it is, but the more rewarding it is. And it's, it, there's a lot of reasons to avoid vulnerability, which is the key to community. But the whole picture, I, I mean, it's hard for us to understand how the gospel itself is the center of... The whole idea of the cross and the message of the cross is that God himself came down in his son and became vulnerable, and that vulnerability alone brought life. And then he invites us, if we embrace this message, we cannot embrace it fully and realize the power it has to change us and to change our world unless we embrace the vulnerability that it calls for. And that vulnerability has a thousand implications. But Paul's talking about it here. Now, how did Paul, who if you, if you know much about this character, Paul... He was a phenomenal person in so many respects. One of the great minds of the ancient world, I mean, scholars believe that Paul, who wrote, I think, 13 letters of the New Testament, was one of the greatest thinkers that the ancient world produced. He was trained at one of the greatest centers of learning under one of the greatest teachers of his time. He was a a, a leader he was an activist. I mean, he was, he was one tough little dude, because a lot of people said he was about five feet tall, a lot of the historical accounts. So he was a short little dude. And they said he was bow-legged, so he was probably a little taller than that, but the bow legs you know, diminished him a little. Where did this tough, independent, have-it-together guy learn the lesson himself that he was teaching That you're a part of something. Because Jews were notoriously standoffish to the larger world. But yet they had this real distinct identity as the people of God. But all of a sudden, Paul is here saying, The people of God don't sleep when I'm teaching, I have a little thing set. i 'm sorry, have nothing to do with that. Uh, Paul is talking about people who aren 't Jews being part of the people of god outsiders he 's talking about people who are morally challenged, to say the least who who come from all kinds of backgrounds and in the ancient world, birds of a feather flock together just like they do now. Where did Paul come up with this idea? I mean America is an expression and outworking of the gospel idea, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We've never really realized that, have we? We've probably gotten further than than most other civilizations have in respect of that, and that's because the gospel is at the center of it. Because if Jesus doesn't change your heart, you're never going to love that person with a different skin color meaningfully. You're not going to love your neighbors yourself If you haven't experienced this outpouring of love that changes everything, that changes you, you won't. You can't do it. Really, really, really noble, well-intentioned people have tried, and their experiments have utterly failed. But in the ancient world, these Christians who this book that we read every week write about, they actually did it. And they gave us this legacy that the church is supposed to be this diverse community that is united around this person, Jesus, and that his life keeps changing us. And it keeps bringing people in to be a part of something that they would have never been a part of except for him. And Paul in Acts 9, here's where Paul first ran into this, and where his whole viewpoint changed. I'm going to just summarize the story so I I won't read the whole thing to you. In Acts 9, Paul was, we find him in the story of the early church as an opponent of the early church. The guy was radically, radically against the early Christians. In fact, he had been deputized by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to go anywhere that there were synagogues, Anywhere where Jews were, because at that point, only Jews were followers of Jesus. Anywhere where those Jews were starting to follow Jesus, Paul could go there and arrest them. He could have them thrown in prison. He could torture them. He could do whatever he wanted because the the Jewish leaders had that authority. And in Jewish and Roman government, understanding had come to the place where they basically said, you Jews are kind of unusual and unique and you got different customs. And so, you know, so long as you get along with Rome, we're okay, but you can take care of your own messes. And so you can police your own disturbances and things unless they start spilling over and affecting, you know, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so Paul is going from place to place. He's persecuting the church and the word the Greek word, when it says persecute, they borrowed, the, they borrowed the term that they saw in nature. The word persecute there is what they use to describe a wild animal tearing apart its prey. So Paul went to places and he would put parents in jail and he would, they would beat people. They would stone people. I mean, it was just the worst kind of terrorism all because of faith. Nothing else behind it. The Christians were a, a very mellow crew. Paul is going along to Damascus from uh, from his most, previ- most recent sort of a, uh, campaign. And as he's going down the road, he's got soldiers with him. He's surrounded by people. Jesus appears to him when he's on the road and says, Saul Saul why are you persecuting me And Saul falls off his horse Everyone hears the voice but no one sees anything but Saul And Saul says who are you Lord And he says I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting Now go into Damascus and it will be told you'll be told what you're supposed to do And so he was blinded by this experience So People get him up off the ground, and he he says, I was led by the hand, which must have been a humiliating thing. I mean, everything about this was humiliating to this guy. He goes into Damascus, and he's fasting and praying for three days. And while this is happening, there's a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple named Ananias, and he's a nobody. This is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. God speaks to him and says, Ananias, There's a man here from Tarsus named Saul, and I want you to go and pray for him. Uh, He's he's praying, and he's blind, and I want you to pray for him because he's going to receive his sight, and uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be baptized, and I have a purpose for his life. Well, Ananias goes, what? No way. Jesus, do you know who this guy is? He's like tearing the church up. And Jesus says, go. You know, he's going to suffer for his faith, but he's a chosen instrument for me. So he goes there. And let me read to you at this point specifically what he says to to Paul. He comes into the house, and he walks up to Paul. He places his hands on Saul. I'm sorry, he he called him at this point. His name hadn't been changed from Saul to Paul. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up when he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength and he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So Saul goes from being this antagonist of the f- church and the faith in Jesus, he meets Jesus and notice what Jesus said to him. Saul's whole theology, his whole philosophy, everything he's teaching us, came out of this encounter. Saul despised the Christians. He despised Jesus. But he, he believed in the one true God. He was, he, he was raised to understand who God was and and. How God spoke and how God showed up, and when Jesus showed up, and he saw it doesn't say it, but the, the, everybody that saw Jesus that had visions of Jesus would see the, the nail scars and the wounds in his, in his body. And he says, "Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And that phrase is used all through the book of Acts of, "The church is the only object that was persecuted." But Jesus, so identified with his people, which is what Paul said later, when you believe in Jesus, you're united to Jesus and you're united to his people. He says, when you persecute them, you persecute me. And Saul goes, who are you? (laughs) I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Again, he reinforced it. He said, those people that you're persecuting are so important to me that you are persecuting me. And all of a sudden, his whole world was rocked. Everything he understood about how reality worked got turned upside down. Now, when you came to Christ, it may not have been near that dramatic for you. But do you understand, when you came to Christ, like when I came to Christ... The only bump in the road for me was there was a kid who lives down the street, who lived down the street from me, who was a Baptist, and he was such a pain in the rear in school. He was always bringing his Bible in, and you know, he just was annoying to me. And I liked all the Christians I met immediately, except for this kid, and it was a pill to swallow to realize this kid is my brother in Christ and I need to drop the attitude towards him. And it was a challenge for me. And I'm sure you've got at least one person in your life who's a follower of Jesus who's a little bit of a challenge for you to get along with, right? Don't most of us have that? Well, Paul, all of a sudden, all those people that he hated, he hated all of them. Now he realizes they are God's people. I thought I was one of God's people. I'm not part of God's people. Now, well, now I am. But now I'm brothers and sisters with them. How does this all work? Oh, my goodness. And then he had to get baptized, too, which, you know, was a, a, a challenging thing for a Jew, a leader, a Pharisee of Pharisees like, like Paul was. So he got this vision. And when most of us heard the gospel, the gospel that you heard was about you going to heaven, most likely. You don't want to go to hell, do you? You want to go to heaven, right? Yeah. You don't want to go to hell, do you? you know that you've got to get them shaking their heads this way. You want to go to heaven, right? Yeah. You want to accept Jesus, right? You get them shaking their heads and it's easier to keep them shaking their heads the right way. But the truth is, this is what uh, Gordon Fee says, God is not just saving individuals And preparing them for heaven. Rather, he's creating a people among whom he can live and who, in their life together, will reproduce God's life and character. And we are all rightfully concerned that each of our lives looks like Jesus. But God is more concerned that our lives look like Jesus because over and over, Jesus said, The most powerful witness that people are going to have that the Father sent me is your love for one another. And how do we ever imagine that we're going to be able to embody the life of Jesus if we're not willing to embody it with other people? Do we really think by ourselves that we can show the majesty of Jesus by ourselves? We can't. The power of what we can be together is far greater than what each of us can be alone. Not that we don't bear witness to Christ and how we serve and and verbally and our life and our character and our love, all those things. That's important. But everybody knows the power of, of one thing is greatly increased when you add other things to it. I mean, that's the principle of a charcoal fire. It's the principle of farming. It's the principle of teams. It's the principle of organizations. And yet, it's one of the most challenging things to get American Christians to stop thinking just Jesus and me and realize that their fundamental identity is Jesus and we. And it really takes a while for this to all sink in. It's still sinking into me, 43 years into this thing of following Christ, from my freshman year in college till now, you will rarely ever meet a more uh, self reliant person than I am. And yet, that is one of my worst flaws. And Paul, in his letters, I'm going to read you, not only does he say we're a body. But he says that we're part of God's household and we're part of God's temple. Among, there's a lot of metaphors he uses to describe what, what, are, what is God's people? What, what are their characteristics? You know, what are the dynamics of being part of God's people? You and me, this thing we have here as a, a local expression of it. Here's, when he says a body, we're all very familiar with that because we all have a body. But the picture he's trying to get across is we work together and interact together in, some, in this potentially amazing way to reflect to the world what Jesus really looks like. That when people meet us together and subgroupings of us, that we have the possibility of actually representing Jesus in the world in a very unique way. And then when he says that we're his household in Ephesians 2, I'll read this passage to you. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And that word household there, it's the word oikos. It means family, like your, your family unit. So you're brothers and sisters in Christ, me and Mike. Me and Steele, me and Jay, me and Tammy, me and Anna. We are not blood relatives, but we're spiritual relatives. We're a part of this family that God adopted and brought together. And some of us, nobody else wanted us. But God did. And through Christ, we're born again into this family. And then he says, and in him, in Christ Christ. oh, I'm sorry, he goes, uh, we're built, he he shifts metaphors all the way through this paragraph, but he goes, we're built, God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And in Jesus, the whole building, now he's starting to to shift the metaphor again, he says, we're building We're joined together and rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in, in Corinth, there were temples everywhere to different deities, different pagan gods. And if you wanted to worship the goddess Diana, there was a very specific location you went to worship Diana. But... The church, Paul says, is the location where God dwelt by his spirit. So wherever the church gathered like this in homes and in larger gatherings, God took these stones like Ryan and John and Tina and Emeka and he built them together and then he dwelt among them by the Holy Spirit. So, when people regularly say when they come to our church and vineyards and other churches, they walk in the doors and they go, What is that I sense here? And, and oftentimes they will be moved and they start crying. I can't tell you how many people have told me they pulled into this parking lot and they started crying. And they'll say, sort of trying to compose themselves, I haven't cried since I, you know, whenever. Well, clearly, it's not because of our well designed architecture, right? And nor the ornamental details of this amazing facility. Certainly not the carpet that, that moved them. It is we're built together to be this dwelling that God lives in by his spirit that people come in and God is everywhere but God's manifest presence is with his people in a very unique way and it it moves people it moves them on many levels and so these metaphors of body now think for it with me for a second body Household and temple uh, uh, stones being built together, they are dripping with intimacy, they are dripping with this sense that God says, I am connected with real people, real gnarly people, real prickly people, real on their way to growing and improving, but not quite yet their people. All different kinds of people, Jew and Greek, slave and free, college dropouts, high school dropouts, PhDs, you know, managers, unemployed, ethnically diverse, young and old. The church is meant to be like the human body Diverse. But that is what all of us instinctively, especially from our past, we resist that. We want to be around people that are like us and that make us feel good. That don't call for anything from us. In fact, if possible, they would be, you know, giving towards us. Yet Paul says, but when you came to Christ, you got joined to this thing that's nothing like that. It's not where the birds of a feather flock together. It's where all kinds of different people flock together. So I, I, I want to just draw to a close this, this, this thought. I don't know if you guys remember this. this. This might date me. About 26 years ago, there was a... As, as the nation of China has gone through economic and political and social changes... A lot of students in 1989 were inspired by what was happening in Europe and the changes in communism and Eastern Europe. And they gathered and began a protest for freedom, for, for political freedom largely, and all kinds of other freedoms, in China, in, this, in Tiananmen Square. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Okay. There is an iconic picture and a a video that goes along with it, where at a certain point, this went on for quite a while, and the Chinese government was really caught and surprised by this protest because, you know, in communist country, you didn't protest. You know, there was no free press. There's no freedom of expression. All the things we take for granted here, which are sometimes kind of annoying and, and all that, they are really important to a society flourishing. Well, they didn't have that there. So these students joined together. They were protesting and calling for a change in governmental policies. And communist leaders had never faced anything like that. And so it went on day after day, week after week for for, a month or two. And then the leaders said, okay, this has got too much attention. This is causing too much trouble. They brought the army in. And there was a scene where tanks, Tiananmen Square is huge. I mean, it's, it's huge. You could, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people could fit in it. It's so large. Tanks started pouring into the square and soldiers started pouring into the square and they started dispersing the gathered students and other protesters. And there's a certain point where there's a, a group of tanks are, are moving into the square and one lone Young Chinese student, like so. This is a tank here. He, they're coming along. He stands in front of them, and he's holding something. I forget what he is holding, but as as the the tanks come towards him, and all of a sudden, the the lead tank stops. And it's a dramatic moment, and he's there by himself. He doesn't have a gun. I mean, I don't know if he had a gun. It would. There's nothing you he, he could have armed himself with it would have made any difference. He's standing there, and the tank goes like this and starts to go around him. He moves over and gets in front of the tank again. The tank stops. All these tanks are stopped. The tank goes this way. He goes over like this, and they do this little dance for a while. Let me tell you, he did that because of the power of a community. He was a part of this community that had, that had emerged. And a lot of the, if you don't know this, a lot of the leaders of that Tiananmen Square movement were Christians. They were Christian students. I know a guy who led a couple of those leaders to Christ when they were in America. That community gave that single student the strength to stand up to tanks. And eventually, you know, the, the tanks kept coming. He moved out of the way. But it was a picture of the power of community. What difference it can have in one person's life. He had stood with them, they had stood against odds, amazing odds, and, and, and very courageously. But people don't tend to do that on their own. We do it because of power of a community, the power of Christ in our community. Well, the, the point I want you to take home from this is really simple. Your faith in Christ, your faith in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus and you have a relationship with him, has united you, like we've talked about the last three weeks, with Jesus himself. All the privileges that, that Jesus has, all the rights You have them because of your faith in Jesus. But you're also united with his people. A person and his people. And it's not optional. Now, we... The the problem, which I really believe, there there is huge holes in our lives because we operate under the understanding that it's Jesus and me. And we can't be who we're meant to be without we. In fact... It, it's, it's sort of silly in life to think that we have an identity as individuals without we. I mean, do you understand that? That nobody has an identity apart from we. In fact, all of the identities that we have and some of them that we struggle with are because of we, which is another incentive for us to embrace the power of community is if you got hurt in community... You're not going to get healed alone. You're only going to get healed in community. And it's risky, and it's challenging. But where can you go to get healed if it's not a community in which Jesus is at the center of it? So I want to ask you, when I asked the earlier question, do you think, is your, is your sort of view more Jesus and me, or is it Jesus and we? Or you kind of (laughs) go back and forth between them because you've already heard this before. You've already thought about this and you've wrestled with this. But it's costly to try to stay in the Jesus and we category. It's hard. It takes vulnerability. And again, inferiority and independence are two scripts that play in our head that, that both are closely related Because the thing that Jesus wants to free you from, if you're a person who thinks, I don't need community, you don't realize it. But you need to be freed from your debilitating self-reliance. There isn't, you know, I say this all the time because I think people get it immediately as a picture. If you look at, The freedom that many little children experience and demonstrate. And then you look at a 30-year-old and you go, what happened between there and there? This little kid who shares and hugs and is open and learns, soaks up like a sponge, becomes this person who's afraid and averse to risk and is increasingly isolated, increasingly self-dependent and self-reliant. And for most men, uh, the older you get, the less friends you have and the less friendships you, you're pursuing and, and on and on and on. What happens between that little child and the adult is self-reliance is just a reaction to disappointment. That's all it is. Now, I mean, there is, a self, self, there is a healthy self-reliance. I don't dispute that. But most of us, we are not, if, if, like, like m- me most of my life, my self-reliance was not healthy. Your self-reliance is not healthy. It is not helping you in life. It's not helping you to be the best version of you. It's not. And it is hard to... Embraced Jesus' invitation to, Im- to live life on his terms. That's what following Jesus is. It's you invite him into your life, and then you let him begin to guide your life. And the symbol of your life is this cross. It is the symbol of who you are. And there are people who misunderstand it because we haven't lived it very well. That's part of the whole marketing thing that the gospel has right now is the church is so Jesus and me. And when you're on your own, you're ornery, you're reactionary and antagonistic, you're afraid, you're just in the vigilance mode, you're nothing like a child. But the gospel that Jesus preached over and over, he said, if you want to experience the kingdom, you've got to become like a child again. You've got to take the risk to lose your life. Because the Jesus in me is about me holding on to as much of my life as I can. The Jesus in me is I'm opening myself up to as much life as I can to give it away and to experience it. And Jesus came and he laid his life down for us. We can't lay our lives down for one another and make the difference that he has because he was God. But if we receive him, he will start changing the DNA of our character and start grafting on new parts of us piece by piece, part by part. It's like spiritual stem cell surgery where our brokenness begins to be repaired in this relationship with this person who's just amazing in every sense of the word. And we go from me, locked up, cut off, but but looking like everything's okay, to we, with it's all hanging out. Everybody sees it, right? Now, Aren't little kids like that? Have you ever seen little kids running around? Like, my, our grandkids were over at our house yesterday, and they're running around. And they got snot running out of one nose, you know, partially eating peanut butter on the side of their face. Uh, you know, at a certain point, uh, little Jordan comes over and he jumps in my lap, and I go, oh, little Jordan needs a diaper change. <laughs> he didn't even worry about it, Right? He's just running around. He's just living life. He is so loved for who he is. He hasn't learned yet to worry about what people think. Because he's just getting loved right now. But we're supposed to be living like that. If, if, but if it's just Jesus and me, I'm not getting all the input that I can get from people and from God because I'm in this defensive, self-reliant, vigilant mode. And I want to ask you, are you there? Is that where you are? You may have never thought that it has anything to do with this Jesus and we stuff. It has anything to do with community. I want to suggest to you today that not that it fixes everything, but your life can't, you can't become the best version of you that God created to exist without us or someone like us. It may not be us here. It's us somewhere. It's the we somewhere. Because Jesus only moves with we. He only moves with we. And I want to ask you today to do three things. First, would you just, as we pray and close, just say yes to embracing this identity of we. And not on your terms, on his terms. And you may not have that totally figured out. Nobody ever does in the beginning. Whenever you start on a new path in life, Jesus never asks you to have it all figured out. But you do have to understand there is a cost to count, as he said. You have to count the cost. And so what it means is you're, you're saying, I'm not going to self-identify anymore as Jesus and me. I'm going to fundamentally say it's Jesus and we. And these people... Are part of my family here at the vineyard, and the individual people, not and and you know, there is no such thing as the mystical body of Christ. I've read this. I've, I've read a lot about this. A lot of scholars have poured over this whole thing, because people say I'm I'm part of the body of Christ. You can't find that idea in the New Testament. The body of Christ were the real flesh and blood people somewhere that you are deeply connected to. You are letting yourself be fooled by some script in your head that's keeping you away from people. And that, that tends to be what happens when we get disappointed and let down, sometimes betrayed and hurt. We, we don't always create them, but, but these scripts emerge in our head that will support our staying away from that happening again kind of life. But that safe life, is a, it, it's an antiseptic life, it's a, it's, a, it's a sterile life, it's not a life of adventure, it's not a life of love, it's not a life of any of the wonderful things that can happen. So that's the first thing. Second thing, would you consciously today let go of your, how did I put it, um, let go of your inferiority? or let go of your independence, or both. If you go, I can't, I can't be a part of something like this, or, or something like this anywhere, because I just don't measure up. They don't need people like me. You're wrong. There isn't a person in this room that doesn't have value and need because of who you are in Christ, and your innate value as the image of God. You bear the image of God. And then the independence just recognize, i got to let go of that. I don't, know how, I don't know where to start, but I want to start by saying I don't want to be that way anymore. And I've talked about this a lot, so I won't believe that point. But if, if you have that independent streak and that Jesus is me, it's the fruit of you reacting to disappointment and betrayal and hurt and difficulties in relationships, family, friends, church. We have, to, we have to let go of that. We have to say, Jesus, help me, help me with that. And then third, I want to ask you, and this is where the Lord will just have to show you where this goes. You've got to begin to be willing to invest your life in we. To invest your life in friendships, to invest your life in small groups, to invest your life in serving, to invest your life in giving money, to invest your life in making we a part of the rhythm of your life daily and weekly. Daily and weekly. Because the body is many and one. So it is with Christ. Your faith in Jesus has united you to him and to his people, to a person and to his people. And I want to ask you just to close with me and to prayerfully engage around those three things. Identify, yield your independence or your inferiority, and then say to Jesus, Jesus, I give you my resources of time, energy, and money, my life itself, and you've given them to me, not just for me, you've given them for me to be a part of something, a we. And I want to meaningfully start on a journey of doing that. And for each of you right now, I promise you, there is, there is a simple point that's coming to your mind right now as I even say that. So I don't have to spell out 15 different possibilities of how you would invest your life. Whatever popped in your head, <laughs> for some of you, I'm sorry for laughing, uh, for some of you, it's probably something you're going, I don't want to do that. If he means this, I'm not doing that. That's it. That's what he means. Right there. You got it. Now you got to sort out how to do that. But that's just the next step. Then there's another step. Then there's another step. There's another step. And I'm an introvert. (laughs) People don't think I am. I'm a terrible introvert. I'm a terrible, I'm an only child. I'm a loner. I'm from Texas. It's like everything about that. Like all the planets lined up to produce me and this version of me and my family and my circumstances, but I'm a lot less like that than I used to be. But it's been a bumpy journey. It's been hard. My wife will tell you it's hard at times living with me. But I can say, the people that know me too, say, you're different, John. And I have friends who I bump into in Texas every once in a while, I get back, and they go, man, I heard you changed. And I go... I hope that's a good thing. I hope you're talking about something positive. And they go, yeah. But it's because of Jesus. And I'm just asking you to let Jesus into your life, and you won't be disappointed. You won't. So why don't you stand with me. And Shanna, come up. We'll just close with this song, and then we'll send everybody on their way. And it's a song we sing about Asking the spirit to come into us and fill us. And there's a promise that I didn't highlight in that verse. And it says, we've all been given the one spirit to drink. When we buy into this body thing, we get to drink of the spirit of Jesus. When we open our hearts up to Jesus, the spirit makes Jesus real to us and all he did for us begins to pour into our lives, pour into the thirstiest parts of our lives. I think some of you here today, a thirst has been awakened in you for something different than Jesus and me. It's a little scary to think about Jesus and we, but there's this fountain that the Lord wants us to drink at just to get a taste up here right now. As we sing this song, and what's the first couple of lines? Yeah, there's nothing worth more that can ever come close. Nothing can compare your our living hope. Your presence, Lord. The Spirit of the Lord brings the presence of Almighty God. He dwells here among us. So as we're singing that song, I ask you to embrace the identity, yield your inferiority or your independence and begin to say, Jesus, help me to begin to invest my life, my life into we in a new way. And we're just going to sing this too a couple of times. You are officially dismissed. You can leave anytime you want, but we're going to hang around up here up front too. There'll be like prayer team people. If you want prayer, we want to bless you that you would drink deeply of the Holy Spirit. And if you want a little bit more of that before you leave, just come up front and we'll pray for you. We're saying this a couple of times. So no one else is going to get up and say you're dismissed because you're hearing it right now.